certain God chose your kind as the object of his love. I was the first in all heaven to bow down before you. My love, my hope for mankind was no less than his. But I have watched you trample that gift. I've watched you kill each other over race and greed, wage war over dust and rubble and the words in old books. And yet, in the midst of all this darkness, I see some people who will not be bound. I see some people who will not give up, even when they know all hope is lost. Some people who realize that being lost is so close to being found. You are the reason I still have faith. Happy hair season. Welcome to the desert of the real. One does not simply walk into... Aeon by Gnostic Radio. An initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host, Miguel Connor, commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. And you deserve to be here, for you are a shining crazy diamond that should be seen and can ignite the universe with so much wonder. You were made for the delirium of 2020 because you are a veteran of a thousand psychic wars who has survived countless existential lockdowns and endless pandemics of consciousness. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. You will thrive in these civil unrest times because chaos is your ladder and you eat nervous breakdowns for breakfast. This may not be the best time to be alive, but it's the best time to be awake. Plus, you know that regardless of what happens, eternity hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there for the taking. You are the one forever walking away from Omelas. It was Dostoevsky who wrote, The best way to keep a prisoner from escaping is to make sure he never knows he's in prison. Sometimes the devil allows people to live a life free of trouble. Because he doesn't want them turning to God. Their sin is like a jail cell accepted. So nice and comfy and there doesn't seem to be any need to leave. The door is wide open. You've always known this meat machine called Earth was a prison, as you've always known that the means to escape is to steal fire from the gods and embrace an ecstasy only the freak and the outcast possess. 
and you relate to this quote by my friend Jim West. Gnosis is simply the knowledge that there's an ultimate and immediate division between who and what you are right now, compared to all that you once were and can be once again. Moreover, this basic knowledge about your situation is combined with a further awareness that there are forces beyond you that seek to promote and exploit this division and generally oppose your well-being. There's only one hell, princess. The one we live in now. So you come to the virtual Alexandria to remember what you once were. I am not a number. I am a free man. For this, and on this eternal now, we will take a touching and motivating journey with an individual who went from a fundamentalist Christian minister to a modern Gnostic of the highest order. That is Adrian Smith, who materializes at the Virtual Alexandria to discuss his new book, a Prison for the Mind, Reflections of a Disappointed Fundamentalist. Excellent interview with the awakened Adrian, and the work is a manual for those of you who are recovering fundies of any stripe. And those of you who really want to fully crack that red pill suppository in your rectums of complacency. If it can be destroyed by the truth... It deserves to be destroyed by the truth. 2020 is a shit show, indeed. But these are Gnostic times in a Philip K. Dick world. More and more individuals like Adrian are seeing this and accepting a more nuclear and shamanistic form of Christianity, or religion in general. Where there is fire, we will carry gasoline. But hey, it's also the age of Hermes. Today's world is both his creation and playground. After all, Hermes is the god of transition, of dawns and dusks, of initiation and doorways of perception. The door hinges belong to Hermes, as Jungian Dennis Merritt said. He is the god of the mind and the god of tricks, and thus he can lead the way or lead astray. Hermes is both the logos and the meltdown that plunges you over the sanity edge. See, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. Hermes revels in pandemonium, but comforts those who have nothing to lose. Calls his friends the freak and the outcast. Hermes is the guide of those going into the underworlds of their broken dreams and mad-filled past to try it one more time and get it right this time. He is the messenger of your soul, just as Sophia is the manifestation of the world's soul. For my time path vanished like a breath, and I am become matter. Some of you may wonder why America is so insanely dualistic and schizophrenic, especially during the pandemic and all the social disorder. That's because America belongs to Hermes, as detailed in Stefan Heller's suddenly relevant book, Freedom, Alchemy for a Voluntary Society. In a very Neil Gaiman American God's way, 
Heller writes that the founding fathers from their Freemason lodges and liberal universities brought Hermes to America and he infused the entire collective consciousness of this continent. As Heller writes, the chief inspire of the American Republic was not Moses or Jesus and even less St. Augustine or St. Aquinas but rather Hermes Trismegistos of old. Hermes, who survive among the alchemists, magicians, Rosicrucians, esoteric Freemasons, and the French Enlightenment philosophers, crossed the Atlantic on his winged sandals and stood with the Caduceus in the first assemblies of the Continental Congress. You know, the Templars and the Freemasons believed that the treasure was too great for any one man to have not even a king. That's why they went to such lengths to keep it hidden. That's right. The founding fathers believe the same thing about government. I figure their solution will work for the treasure too. Give it to the people. Yes, the founding fathers thought they brought Hermes in his full Gnostic aspect of Trismegistos. But this archetypal force mingled and was weaponized by the trickster spirit of the Native Americans and girded his loins against a dark egregore that had arrived separately centuries earlier on the Mayflower and other ships. Jehovah, or the Puritan spirit as Heller calls it. I think I've lost control again and put it all down to evolution. Hermes has mostly governed the American soul, however. Hermes is the deity of innovation and exploration and optimistic reasoning. But in his shadow side, he is the god of thievery and financial greed and cruel shitposting. As seen in myths like him stealing the cattle of Apollo or trolling and gaslighting innocent mortals and gods alike. Very American, as most around the world know and would agree especially after the Empire arrived in the late 19th century and placed the hologram over the gringo awareness. The Empire is the institution, the codification of derangement. What the hell happened to us? What happened to the American dream? It came true! You're looking at it. Hermes oversees America, and that's why its citizens act like they do, and are acting even more in 2020. This country, as Heller writes, has always been a frenetic alchemical laboratory. Much like other Hermes caliphates in history, like ancient Alexandria, Renaissance Florence, medieval Haran or Baghdad, or Persian Halamut of the Assassins. Yes, America is a place of magic and meaning. But again, Hermes on these shores is perhaps a triple-faced deity when you include the Coyote and the Puritan. So we're trapped here inside your dream. Never let us leave. Adrian's interview will make you understand these three faces of Hermes. Is there anything we can do? Of course, we write our own gospel and we live our own myth. We distill the essence of Hermes by continuing to awaken, 
take journeys to our inner underworlds to make matters right, and dream, innovate, and create when others despair. Never stop rebelling against fundamentalism in all its NPC forms. Why did all the dinosaurs die out? Because you touch yourself at night. I personally can't help but rebel the more gnosis I have. I just can't. I'm going to ride the coils of the Ouroboros until I break through because I'm tired of coming back to the Black Iron Prison for the last million years. Tired. So tired. So I'm going to rebel, and Hermes will continue to open those doors of perception for me. And in this age, as the world falls apart, we are his high priests and priestesses. We freaks and outcasts because we embrace gnosis and know what we can be once again. To say yes to one instant is to say yes to all of existence. At the end of the interview with Adrian, I will be playing Lustrous Heart by Draconian one of the best gothic metal bands in all of history. And you might notice the Gnostic themes and my appearance in the song. Nipples for men! Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it just is. And cheers to you, Anders. America doesn't bail out the losers. America was built by bailing out winners by rigging a nation of the winners, for the winners, by the winners. You go to church, Nash? You go to church? Sure. Only one in a hundred's gonna get on that ark, son. And every other poor soul's gonna drown. I'm not gonna drown. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we definitely have the pleasure of being joined by Adrian Smith to discuss his new book, A Prison for the Mind, Reflections of a Disappointed Fundamentalist. Adrian, thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you for inviting me. Very happy to be with you tonight. Pleasure is all ours. And with us, as always, we also have the pleasure of having Vance the Moondog with us. How are you doing, Vance? I'm very good today, and I'm looking forward to hearing Adrian's experiences of Gnosis. As I mentioned, your book is Raw Meat for the Gnostic-Minded. I enjoyed your book, and I believe our audience will enjoy this book very much. So um, I was thinking, reflections of a disappointed fundamentalist. Could we say reflections of a recovering fundamentalist? Can we put it in, couch it in the terms of addiction? I think it would be very good to couch it in the terms of addiction. In fact, I was going to raise that very point tonight. 
And yes, it is uh, continuing vigilance and continuing recovery because there's always the possibility of relapse. Exactly. I think, uh, as I've talked about in the show, and for those who have found uh, freer ways to live, uh, ways to look inside, the programming is always there. It's like a virus, and your book is an an excellent autobiography. And, of course, we should say a lot of the audience will know that the title, A Prison for the Mind, is uh, from The Matrix. Is that where you thought of it? Oh, yes, that's where I got, got it from which is, of course, a very Gnostic uh, film. I would agree. And, of course, it reminds me of William Blake and uh, his, in his poem. Uh, God, it? Oh, my God, I'm drawing a blank. But he talks about he's walking in the Thames and he's talking about the Mind Forge Manacles. So. Ah, the Mind Forge Manacles, yeah. So that's the same thing. And that's definitely what uh, all the, this battle is. But... First, let's start, uh, before we start talking about uh, your life and other concepts, there is a trope that flows through all of your book, A Prison for Your Mind, and that is from a Gnostic movie, too, one could argue, even though it was written by a theosophist, and that is the wizard, the Wizard of Oz trope. Could you tell the audience uh, who is the wizard in personal and universal terms? Well, there are many wizards, but the wizard can refer to the religious leader of the Christian fundamentalist sect in which I was a minister. So he was definitely the wizard, but there are many of them. Uh, But I consider the Wizard of Oz to be a near-perfect analogy from my experience in the church and also for all forms of, of fundamentalism. And I should define fundamentalism as I mean it. Uh, There's a twofold definition in a dictionary. One refers to the propensity for Christians to take the Bible literally as opposed to as an analogy. But it can also mean strict adherence to the basic principles of any subject or discipline. And it's in this latter sense that most of the book is written. So the, uh, the, the Wizard of Oz is, uh, as I say, a, store, a perfect analogy for what I went through. Uh, the, you have uh, Dorothy, who represents the average citizen. You have the straw man who thinks he doesn't have a brain, and the tin man who thinks he doesn't have a heart, and the cowardly lion who thinks he has no courage. So they consider themselves to be deeply flawed and deeply wanting And so they're looking outside of themselves for their answers. Um, They don't consider finding their answers within themselves because they don't trust themselves, because they don't feel adequate enough. So they're off to see the wizard to get the answers. Uh, The wizard himself is kind of a puppet. Um, There's two evil witches that uh, stand behind him, and they're pulling his strings so the, the story is really about finding out that the emperor has no clothes, and then behind him is the, the wicked witches, the wicked witch of the east and the, the wicked witch of the west. The Wizard of Oz is, the, is a puppet, and the, behind him are the, the wicked witches. Um, so I was discussing how um, 
Dorothy and her companions consider themselves to be deeply flawed. The straw man lacks a brain, the tin man lacks a heart, the cowardly lion wants courage. And so because they feel themselves to be deeply flawed, they don't look within themselves. They're looking outside themselves for their answers. So they're off to see the wizards to find out the truth and to get their answers. They eventually find out that the uh, emperor has no clothes. And then they're suddenly thrown back on their own resources. A little bit like what happened to me when I got excommunicated from the church. I was suddenly thrown back on my resources, on my own resources, which is as it should be. And they find out, I think, they find they find out that uh, they can find the truth in their own backyard. There's no place like home. And they also find out that they can find out the truth from themselves or from each other, uh, much as Paul talks about in the New Testament about... Um, the gifts of the spirit and how each one has a different gift to share. And that's what Gnosticism is to me also, is a kind of a sharing as opposed to an authoritative top-down. Yeah, well said. I agree with you. Uh, we definitely want to get into the Gnosticism part and everything, but staying with, the again, the trope of the wizard, there is one part of your book I enjoyed, or I enjoyed a lot of it, but uh, you talk about, and I'm quoting you, Adrian, you say that when talking about the wizard, that help does not come from the wizard, but those deeply flawed but wonderful human beings leaning over the garden fence. Yes, that's that's right. Yeah, it's the it's um, finding inspiration from each other on a basis of equality, not on, on the basis of a hierarchy. Although each member of their little community was flawed, they each have their strengths also. As is the case, you know, the, whatever weakness we have, there's a corresponding strength. So put everybody together and you have a considerable human being and a considerable resource. Did I mention my broadened definition of fundamentalism? Did I get to that? No, that's uh, that was actually my next sort of follow-up oh, question <laughs> to remind you. Yes, like you said before, fundamentalists is simply seen as someone who takes uh, a religious scripture as literal. But uh, tell us your definition. I used an ex the expanded definition for the basis of my book, which is a strict adherence to the basic principles of any subject or discipline. So I found uh, fundamentalism in many different places. Something happened after I left the church or I was expelled from the church. I began to feel in some cases uncomfortable around certain people or feeling that I had gone through this experience before. Although it was in very different contexts. And uh, then I began to formulate what I think is the essence of, of fundamentalism and how it can exist in many different contexts. It's like something that is there that is cleverly disguised in different places. And I refer to, for example, New Age fundamentalism. And I think the political divide is very much along the same lines. 
people who refer almost like robotically to a checklist of beliefs, which are beliefs, assumptions, theories, propositions, all of which have been hardened into a dogma, which represents the truth. And it seems that if you know one thing about someone or you know what they believe about one thing, you know what they believe about just about everything else. Because fundamentalism doesn't allow you to cherry pick. You have a list of beliefs and you have to sign up to all of them. It's, it's a little bit how Elaine Pagels describes the, the Orthodox Church and the difference between the Orthodox Church and the, the Gnostics. Uh, with the Orthodox Church, there was a, like a checklist. You, know, you can imagine someone standing there with a clipboard. Uh, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died for your sins? Check, check. Do you attend the Sunday Masses? Check. Do you accept the authority of the church? Check. If you sign up to all of it, then you're in. So it's a kind of um, superficial unity that is being imposed, as opposed to the Gnostic, which was a qualitative measure kind of the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, faith, etc. So they kind of uh, had this measure of um, the quality of the relationships. Love it. Love what you're saying. And yes, it is interesting. Uh, there is a checklist. Like you said, if somebody says I'm for this cause or I believe in this, they don't even have to tell you the rest. You know that the program That's says right. you're split. And oddly enough, the people on the other side will have diametrically opposed views. And you know, both are false, aren't they? I mean, it's almost like these were created by a man behind the curtain. Yes, exactly. And also, if someone finds out something that you believe, they will automatically have to put you into a category. So you are not allowed to cherry pick. You, you see what I mean? Exactly. It's interesting how the world is like this. I mean, I always say it's because divide and conquer is always oh. an easy way to subjugate the populace. Absolutely. Isn't that what it basically comes down to it? That was us. Uh, that was one of the things I was going to talk about tonight, so let's go. my thoughts very closely. <laughs> oh, we are talking about the great gnosis of the times. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of consider fundamentalism to be a counterfeit of Gnosticism in that um, fundamentalists are very sure, and they say we know, but it's this propositional kind of knowledge that they're referring to propositions hardened into dogmas, um, and it doesn't last. I mean, somewhere along the line, reality intrudes and starts to challenge the, the narrative. It's kind of like the difference between the meal and the menu or the map and the territory. <clears throat> Fundamentalists adhere to the menu and they even try to eat it. It's not very tasty. And uh, there's a big difference between the map and the territory, and the, the Gnostics are entering the territory itself. And it's a kind of shamanistic or intuitive knowing as opposed to a set of doctrines that you have to sign up on. So um, we know from the book of John that um, the Demiurge is a 
counterfeiter, that he creates counterfeits. I also think he's a shapeshifter because he can occupy many different belief systems, some of them even opposite to each other. But behind it all is the same spirit or the same set of characteristics. And I list a few of them in the book. Uh, I talk about utopian visions that if you adhere to this set of doctrines or truths, then that will bring about utopia. And Gnostics tend not to think in those terms. They think that the world is fundamentally flawed and it can't be fixed. It can only be uh, transformed or transcended or shattered. And I also see the, uh, the Demiurge as someone that infiltrates movements. Some of them start out very well, but somewhere on the long, along the line it goes really wrong. It's like um, they're being infiltrated, they're being corrupted. So when I was writing the book, I had a hard time sometimes referring to things like postmodernism because when I was halfway through my expose of postmodernism, I started to realize, well, I am a postmodernist. <laughs> so what am I talking about? <laughs> what am I attacking? And I think what I'm attacking is some corrupted, defiled version of it. And so whenever a movement sort of gains recognition and visibility, this is when it becomes vulnerable to infiltration. And you could use a simple example, you know, the when Constantine saw this vision of a burning cross with a behind the sun with an inscription on it by this conquer. So that he appropriates to himself and uses as a kind of mask of piety the Christian religion. Then the next thing you know, there's papal armies laying siege to cities, massacring the inhabitants, and everyone's saying, well, it must be good, it must be okay. Uh, because of this magic trick that he's pulled, there's the words of Jesus were more like, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, then would my servants fight. But now is my kingdom not from thence. So Jesus was not into building worldly empires or anything close to it. So he's, they've basically taken and corrupted the message beyond recognition. But there are many examples of the same thing. You were talking about the steak in the menu, and that's obviously from Joseph Campbell, where he talks about uh, religions that they want a copy. They don't want that direct access to the transcendental. And I like how you write, Adrian, that even though you do admit that Gnosticism is postmodern in some ways, but you also say that you resonate with Gnostic philosophy quote, because it regards personal experience as the only thing we can know for sure. Right. Yes. And that's why I think that um, it's a fake version of Gnosticism. Fundamentalism is a fake version. Because when we look into the world of the Demiurge, when we start poking around inside of it, um, it's very hard to know anything for sure within it. No, there isn't. And that's interesting because late in my life, I think I've, well, I've always known this, but I've sort of accepted it. 
when I'm angry, it's because there's a, a fear underneath. And underneath that fear is a need for me to control, to know. Do you think that the wizard uh, and the fundamentalist, they want to uh, control because ultimately uh, they're afraid of what might be out there? Yes. There is this need for, for control. And there's an, I think there's a deep-seated anxiety. People don't know what to believe anymore. They are confused. It's a maze-like puzzle. I compare it to a funhouse hall of mirrors or a maze where you don't know what's real and what's an illusion. And it's very, very hard to determine the truth. Um, as a scientist, you have the scientific method. As a lawyer, you have the rules of evidence in court. But any scientist or any lawyer will know that it's really, really a rigorous process to find out what's actually true. And scientists argue with each other all the time, and most definitely lawyers argue with each other all the time. So it's a confusing and bewildering situation that a lot of people feel they need to have a cure. And it's all about the direction of travel. It's all about finding the truth outside of yourself, inside the matrix, as opposed to changing the direction of travel to the inner journey where you will find that shamanic connection, that intuition, that vision that is very private, but at the same time universal, because it takes you into the, the realm of the subconscious and the collective unconscious, from whence comes the myths and the dreams and the visions that are characteristic of the Gnosticism. So it's about the direction of travel. And I think it was Carl Jung who said... Um, he who looks without sleeps. He who goes within awakens. Yes, I think you hit it on the head. And even in your book, you talk about what the Gnostics would do, why you related to them, or you found them engaging. Uh, they had their meetings where they would be very egalitarian and switch places. And sometimes they would just sit around and talk about their personal revelations. It was like exactly. an ancient form of therapy where everybody was equal and there wasn't this sort of a commanding person above them telling, you need to believe this, you need to think this. This is the way it is because... I'm afraid and I can't share my feelings. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> That's yes. basically what's behind every despot or priest or anything. <laughs> Adrian, although we will continue to discuss it as the interview goes, and uh, we'll touch upon this since your story is long and there was a long evolution, but what would you say was the most important factor causing you to awaken from the sleep of fundamentalism? The hearing of alternatives. Um, fundamentalist ideologies are a collection of assumptions, theories, speculations, beliefs, and opinions hardened into dogmas presented as absolute truth. Therefore, the best way out of a belief system is to hear a variety of alternative theories, beliefs, and opinions. And you don't have to believe any of these either, but at least you know they exist. And this is enough to burst the wizard's bubble of one truth, one reality, one narrative. At least now you are able to see the world as it actually is, a truly confusing and uncertain place 
Whereas it says in 1 Corinthians 13, we see through a glass darkly. The only thing we know for sure is our own experience, our own connection with the divine, our own intuition. And this is the Gnostic way of, of knowing. Someone asked Carl Jung if he believed in God. I do not believe in God, he replied. I know. Ideologies consists of beliefs. Jung was describing an actual encounter, and that's Gnosticism. You can say you believe in something. I often do, but then I say to myself, what's that going to look like in six months? Probably something a bit different. The wizard's dream world of one truth, one reality, one narrative cannot survive the concept of multiple realities, infinite possibilities, or the multiverse, parallel universes as articulated by the physicist Hugh Everett. And as Shakespeare wrote, there are more things in heaven and earth ever dreamed of in your philosophy. So the only way a belief system can survive in such an environment is to cut people off from those alternative perspectives, and that means censorship. They need to build a moat around the ideology. Wherever censorship is practiced, you know you're in a cult. Who are the censors? Well, they're the priests and ayatollahs, or in secular terms, they are people who have established, established themselves as our moral and intellectual superiors. You're not allowed to listen to this speaker coming to the university because he's a very bad person. Really? Yeah. Who says so? How about I go listen to him and decide for myself? So censorship can be direct or indirect. Direct censorship is actual book burnings and widespread murder, as in Nazi Germany, Soviet Russia, the Spanish Inquisition, Salem witch trials. <clears throat> murder can reach hysterical proportions, as in the Salem witch trials, where many innocent women were hanged. When you truly believe that your particular set of doctrines will usher in a utopia, almost anything is justified. I do believe there is such a thing as ideological possession. Young wrote, people do not have ideas, ideas have people. More common today is the indirect form of censorship, such as the ad hominem attack, personal attacks on a person rather than engage with their ideas. I describe demonization of the opposition as characteristic of all belief systems. That's what happened to me. Under suspicion, I was asked to deliver a loyalty statement expressing full alignment with a set of doctrines. When I refused, I was fired. They then wanted a verbal assurance from me that I would not communicate heretical beliefs to members of the congregation. I refused that too, and then I was excommunicated from the church, but not only that, I was marked, identified as a truly dangerous and wicked person. And from that day forward, no one was allowed to speak to me. And that's how belief systems control the flow of information. I think this indirect form is an early warning. Demonization of the opposition can quickly turn into actual book burnings and real violence. In my last days in the church, I allowed myself to listen 
to a dissident professor at the college who had left the church writing articles deconstructing the church doctrine. Of course, he was very heavily demonized. And I was reluctant at first because we were warned not to listen to him because that could turn us away from the faith once delivered. But I did eventually start reading his material, and that's all it took. That was really just the beginning of the end. That's how powerful I think it is. I bet, yeah. And that's why all authoritarian regimes are so very keen on cutting off that information flow and managing it. Uh, just recently, I've been listening to a few interviews, debates, and lectures by the renowned evolutionary biologist, uh, Dr. Richard Dawkins. Oh, yeah. Dr. Dawkins describes himself as a militant atheist, which sounds a little evangelical to me. Dr. Dawkins is, in fact, on something of a crusade, not just against fundamentalist ideologies, where I agree with him completely, but against all forms of spiritual expression and anything which does not accord with the doctrine of scientific materialism. So psychic phenomena, premonitions, out-of-the-body experiences, near-death experiences, the spirit world, that's all bunk as far as he's concerned. People who believe such things, he describes them as ignorant, superstitious, irrational, frauds, charlatans, and pseudoscientists. A great many equally eminent scientists, such as Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, disagree with him on this, but it must be difficult for them because no one wants to be called a fraud or a pseudoscientist, as this can hurt your career. Exactly. Perhaps more scientists would come forward if they had not been censored in this way. In an interview, very interesting, he was asked if he thought it was possible we lived in a computer-generated simulation program, an idea which is gaining currency in the scientific community. Um, he responded that he thought it was possible. I was surprised. Who then is the programmer, the interviewer asked. Some highly advanced intelligence, he replied, possibly. But he insisted on one thing. Such an intelligence must have evolved according to a Darwinian evolutionary process, which is completely brined. He was asked if life on other planets was possible. Not only possible, but likely. But once again, it would need to have arisen according to those same Darwinian processes. So here we have something which resembles to me a miracle. A universe which screams intelligent design, originated by a process which is completely blind, meaningless, and random. When a sufficient level of complexity is reached, consciousness arises as an epiphenomenon, an unnecessary byproduct. Is there a purpose to life? He was asked. Yes, the propagation of DNA. So evolution, whatever that is, has a purpose, which I find a little bit contradictory. I thought it was supposed to be blind. <laughs> yeah. This sounds very much to me like an assumption hardened into a dogma. I don't think it's, a, it's not a part of his equation which he can actually prove. 
Darwin's origin of the species is the Bible, the materialistic scientist is the priest, and the elimination of superstition and religion is the path to a utopian future. And the ad hominem attack, the means of silencing the opposition. And that's what I mean by all these things sort of resembling each other. Dr. Dawkins could be visited by a host of heavenly angels. And he could say, isn't evolution grand? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yes, he would. And it reminds me of a verse in the Bible. Neither would they believe the one returned from the dead. An equally religious person would say God works in mysterious ways. So you can explain anything with the origin of the species, anything at all, including a, um, a universe run by a demiurge. You can explain anything with the Bible, too. Atheists say, I don't believe in God because all of this evil in the world. So why not believe in an evil God then? Exactly. Who says he has to be good? But there are alternatives to this materialistic view. You don't need to jump on any bandwagon. Just know there are alternatives. What if, for example, consciousness is primary and not an unnecessary secondary effect? What if the material universe arises from consciousness and not the other way around? Which is more plausible? Consciousness is a big problem for Dr. Dawkins, as it is for many materialistic scientists, but he won't admit it. Oxford philosopher Dr. Douglas Chalmers says consciousness is, quote-unquote, the hard problem for science. There's another problem for Dr. Dawkins, and that's the Copenhagen interpretation of a physicist Niels Bohr, creator of the now famous double-slit experiment. The experiment proved that an observer is necessary to bring reality into existence, which accords with, interestingly, the aboriginal belief that we dream reality into existence as we walk along. I don't believe Dr. Dawkins is wrong about the spiritual reality. I know he's wrong, and I mean that in the Gnostic sense. <laughs> no. I agree. My father was a scientific materialist in the same tradition. When I was a young man in my teens, I witnessed my father rush to the phone to make a frantic call to the UK. He had had a very powerful sense that his mother had just died. The premonition was justified as, as his own father confirmed that this was so. The odd thing about this is that it made absolutely no difference to his worldview. It was as if it never happened. This is often the case when reality collides with an ideology the ideology wins, the triumph of the ideology over reality. A few years ago, Roxanne and I made friends with a lady in Sedona, a Reiki master named Susanna. Although I was skeptical at first, we participated in some healing sessions and intuitive readings with a small group. But there were a number of remarkable synchronicities happening around this time. I'll give one example. I was traveling in my RV to Toronto to, to take care of my aging parents. As I approached Rumford, Maine, the engine started to fail, and I had just enough power to limp into the Walmart parking lot where I would camp for the night. After a while, I went into the store to look for a video. While in the video section, I looked to my right, and there was Susanna standing right next to me, not three feet away. 
Hmm. I thought she was in Sedona. I didn't know that she had moved to Maine wow. very recently, and she had not told us yet. Susanna says, I knew I was going to find you guys because I was just thinking of you. The question since then has been what to make of this. My tentative hypothesis is that we live in a reality which is only one of many masquerading as the only one possible. This one is a deterministic prison where events are indeed random, meaningless, cruel, but a world where children get bone cancer, the world of the demiurge. There is, however, another reality beyond this one where things are meaningful. We could call it the pleroma. And that reality can occasionally intrude into this one, call it a glitch in the matrix. Jung defines synchronicity as meaningful coincidence. So what was the meaning of this? And I've been thinking about that a lot. Perhaps the message for me was, Susanna and what she represents should not be dismissed. Could it be that our human connection to the pleroma is subversive to the false reality of the demiurge? Strengthen that connection and the false reality starts falling apart. That can be a little frightening, though. It starts to disrupt the well-ordered world. We might get scared. Things are no longer predictable. We might think, why didn't I take the little blue pill? <laughs> yeah, wonder about that sometimes. Huh? <laughs> like, like Cypher in the Matrix. Right, right. I should have taken the little blue pill. A few years ago, I read a book by John Rappaport. It was called The Secret Behind the Secret Societies. John says the secret societies create a work of, all, of art when they create their reality. And then they call it the only piece of art, the only painting possible. They are able to reinforce this notion through the conduits of information which they control. What they don't tell you is a lot more important than what they do tell you. This results in a narrowing of the imagination, sim similar to Timothy Leary's concept of the reality tunnel. A reality tunnel is something restricted, constrained. Imagination cannot roam freely, but it is carefully directed. The secret book of John says of the demiurge that he lacks divinity, which is the divine creative intelligence. Human beings have it. They, the Archons, want it, so they co-opt it for their purposes. The divine light in Adam, creative intelligence, actually creates worlds and sustains worlds. The book of John says that this divinity in Adam sustains all the demons in this underworld and is necessary for their very survival. Could it be that if we withdrew from them the power of our attention and intention, the matrix goes poof? If yes, it means that we have unwittingly participated in a form of magic. It's as though our collective intentionality, creativity is co-opted and directed in their service and in the service of perpetuating their world, their reality. And magic, as we know, is uh, the human mind, the human creative process influencing the actual material universe. 
The book of John also says that the demons, in order to keep the divine light of Adam available to them to sustain their world, order Adam not to use his creative power of imagination or to direct it towards the pleroma from whence he came. Human imagination, therefore, released from its prison, is extremely powerful and highly subversive to the world of the Archons. And when did you find the Gnostics? At what point in your life did you become interested in the Gnostics? Well, it was a long time after I left the church. Uh, and it was through the works of Elaine Pagels. While leading up to my excommunication, I was basically beginning to take the Bible less literally in more of a mythological sense. And I was rejecting the authoritarian model in favor of an egalitarian sharing approach. I didn't quite get the whole idea of become, being an authority figure anymore. And But then when I read Elaine Pagels, it was like the lights went on because she was describing my own experience. Um, for example, she mentions the, the rebuke that... Um, Thomas received because uh, when he didn't, when he wanted to see and have evidence of something and he was rebuked, but she mentioned that there was a conflict going on within the early church between those who had uh, this view of um, their own personal revelation and those who wanted to accept an authoritative version as in the book of John, if you don't accept that we have seen these things, that we saw Jesus ascend to, into heaven. We saw these things. If you don't believe it, then you are condemned. So it was kind of like a believe it or else model. But that was only one book. There were actually many, many Gospels that had a different approach. And then it made me realize, well, there was a lot of diversity in the early church and a lot of choices and if anything, fundamentalism is a kind of narrowing of the imagination. So you're presented with very narrow choices and very limited choices. So once you're out of it, you feel, well, now I'm free to roam. I'm free to exper experiment or explore different ideas and different approaches. But it was, a, it was a rejection of that authoritative model. And then the works of Elaine Pagels kind of provided uh, an academic or scholarly basis for it. But it was as though when I read a lot of the Gnostic material that it was more of a remembering. It's like that kind of a, a sense of recognition as opposed to learning something new. Deja vu. Right. Or, or as Plato said, our learning is remembering. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's my point. Yes, all learning is remembering. What insights have you found, uh, for example, in the Gospel of Thomas? I love, uh, obviously, there's that saying, uh, you must bring forth what is within you and oh, it will save you. If you do not, it will uh, destroy you. Tell us what it, was, how has that helped your life? I think it's an antidote to the machinations of the, the Demiurge. You bring forth that which is in you. Get involved with some kind of creative work that brings forth from your unconscious your own. What do you believe, or what do, what's coming from you, as opposed to 
what Carlos Castaneda calls the foreign installation, something that's been planted in your head that you're repeating like a robot, something that's authentically you. And if you do that, then it will save you. It's um, You're establishing that connection with the divine. And that's only to be done on the inner journey. And if you don't do it, well, you're in torment. You never, it doesn't feel right. Yeah, of course, you're preaching to the choir here. I think one of the sayings was that I forgot what they asked Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. They're always asking him. I think they're asking him, should they do alms or something like that? And he simply says, uh, do not lie and do not do what you don't want to do, for everything will be revealed in heaven. Ah, yes. That's been going in my head. I'm matching that with become a passerby. <laughs> yes. And um, I love how you talk about the Gospel of Thomas almost talks or expresses a holographic universe in one of the sayings, Adrian. Yes. Well, that the, the microcosm or the macrocosm is contained in the microcosm. So everything that the, the whole universe is and whatever the pleroma is, the fullness of everything is contained in its tiniest part. So everything that the creative intelligence of the universe is, is ours also. And so we're bringing forth that creativity in, in forming that connection. Well said indeed. And God, what was this saying? I think I just pulled it up here. I don't know why it's by my head, but I feel I should say it. Where is it? Oh, here it is. Thing number six for the audience. His disciples ask him, do you want us to fast? How shall we pray? Shall we give alms? What diet shall we observe? Jesus said, do not tell lies and do not do what you hate, for all things are in plain sight of heaven, for nothing hidden will not become manifest, and nothing covered will remain without being uncovered. One of my favorite sayings, but probably the hardest one to follow, because it's just telling you, be authentic. Be ah, honest with yourself and absolutely. the world. Yes, that's beautiful. Tell the truth, your truth. Exactly. And how would you describe Gnosis or for the audience? What is Gnosis to you, Adrian? Well, I can give you an example. Yeah, please do. The thing that comes very close to it for me is an experience I had uh, in Bend, Oregon. We went to a place called Crater Lake. I had a book, Sacred Sites of the West. And so my wife and I would travel to these places. And this Crater Lake was just absolutely beautiful. It was a, a lake that was formed 7,700 years ago when a mountain exploded in the uh, observed by the Klamath people. They later called it the abode of the great spirit, and they would use it for vision quests. And it was just like an otherworldly experience for me. Um, and later that night, I had a remarkable experience of um, feeling a tremendous sense of well-being, unlike anything that I have ever experienced before. And a profound sense that what I was experiencing was the truth, the real truth, the kind of direct apprehension of it. 
that everything else was an illusion. And it was something that literally brought me to tears. And it's very unlike me, you know, I wasn't, I was usually don't cry. And this was very, something of a different magnet order of magnitude. I've had many kind of strange coincidences and paranormal psychic things going on, but this was perhaps the most profound thing that's ever happened to me. And I just had no doubt. And I just kept, saying thank you, thank you was something for which I was profoundly grateful. And there was an inner voice that said that I would um, soon be resuming my normal life and my normal senses, but I should never forget it and that I would never forget it. And it's it's been um, true ever since. It was as though very simple message, everything is okay. Sort of, as it says in the Bible, all things work together for good. And I started to understand words that I had never fully understood before, like words like grace and forgiveness, salvation. So that's kind of my, uh, I had no doubt that at the time that, and, I, and since then, that that was, that was a Gnostic experience, a shamanic experience, possibly brought on by the fact that we were setting our intention to visit these sacred sites like a pilgrimage. And that kind of set the stage for it. Beautifully said. Yes. As I tell people, when you read texts like the secret book of John, as uh, gory and dark and uh, intense as they seem to be, the message is that there's a rescue plan and everything's going to be okay. According to Ah. Sophia and according to Jesus. So that's uh that's one of the things of gnosis. I thought at the time it was just like some, it's like everything was, there was a big safety net under the whole universe that you couldn't possibly fall out of it, that everything was handled. These are words and words fall far short of the experience. But that's the best I can do. And I have had some pretty extraordinary coincidences and occurrences that have taught me that reality is not what we normally think it is. You know, that experiences that have challenged my ordinary conception of reality. Pretty amazing things, which I could talk about too, but nothing compared to this, this particular experience. Yeah, please, at any time you want to talk about it. And I think that's the other thing about being able to see contradictory ideas or not having to fall into one side or another. But I think uh, with the Gnostics or Gnosticism or Gnosis, you can accept that the universe is a horrible place that's never going to get better. It is what it is, but you also can accept that it's, it is full of divinity waiting to shine. Yes. That's right. Yes. And I love your chapter on the Demiurge. You gave old Yald about his own chapter. Maybe you can share with the audience, but I love, Adrian, how you call the Demiurge the great Russian doll. Ah, uh, yes. I use a couple of analogies for fundamentalism. One of them is the fractal, because um, the fractal is kind of a recurring pattern in nature. 
where the tiny part resembles the whole. It's not a, exactly the same as with a hologram. So I kind of thought that way about my experience with the church, that it wasn't a isolated experience, that it's something that repeats itself in a pattern. And what was the analogy? Oh, yes, the Russian doll. Yeah, the um, my experience was a small doll, but it's something that repeats itself all the way up to the level of the demiurge. So you're saying like a copy of a copy? Is that the analogy? The analogy is that what I experienced was rather minor, but it was in its essence the same as a much larger hierarchy uh, going all the way, stretching all the way to the demiurge. Yeah, as above, so below. And uh, I think exactly. you mention how the archons or the demiurge may be a form of AI. And we've had guests in the past who have contended this, like Frank DeVita. Some take it more literal as the demiurge and the archons were some alien robotic sort of empty form that's feeding on this planet. Others take it more metaphorically, but you believe it's a great analogy. Might be yes. true, who knows? <laughs> well, we, we do read in the book of John that the light that was in Sophia got transferred to the human Adam, and therefore the Demiurge lacks this quality known as divinity, which makes him very robot robotic. Yes, but at the same time, in another section of your book, Adrian, you do say that the Archons may be the programmers of reality, but we are the meta-programmers of reality. So we do have, we have an edge on them, right? Well, that's what they don't want us to find out about. <laughs> of course. <laughs> I read something just recently which kind of blew me away. It's um, from the Gospel of John. Yeah, feel free to read it if you want. I just read a whole passage in the Gospel of Thomas. Take your time. <laughs> Since the power of Sophia is now incorporated into Adam, and that power sustains all the demons of this underworld, they realize that imprisoning Adam and keeping him from exercising his divine capacity for insight is necessary to their very survival, which I thought was really quite uh, mind-blowing. It is indeed, and uh, I love your connection between the Lancet liver fluke in the Apocryphon of John. You want to explain that to the audience, please? Great analogy. Characteristics of fundamentalism and cognitive totalitarianism is parasitism. So um, the wizards are feeding off our energy, they're feeding off this divine light of Sophia within Adam to sustain their world. And the, the Lancet liver flute is a, a microcosm and the Demiurge is the macrocosm and they're all working the same. Uh, there's a passage in the book of John about uh, how the, um, the Demiurge um, works through deception. His power is to deceive, leading astray. And, um, the parasite wants you to see the world the way the parasite sees it. And so this is happening at the microscopic level, and it's happening at the macroscopic level also. So with the liver flute, the liver flute actually invades the brain of an ant and turns it into a zombie, inducing it to time, 
climb to the top of blades of grass at a time where cattle are feeding. And when the cattle eat the grass, they eat the ants that have been occupied by the parasite. And the parasite therefore invades the liver of the, the cattle. But they're being brainwashed to more or less see the world the way the parasite sees it and to adjust their behavior to benefit the parasite. Ugh. And uh, I remember reading um, a book by Colin Wilson years ago called The Mind Parasites. Mm, great book. So the parasites sometimes invade the soft tissue of a crab and hollow out its brain and operate it like an imperial walker in the Star Wars movies. <laughs> So the fundamentalist belief systems leave you as being kind of a zombie. You're not really, you, as you said earlier, not really coming from the depths of who you are. It's like a programming. So you have programmed responses and programmed reactions. Yeah, that's pretty grim. These parasites, you use these examples, which is very eye-catching and really parallels well the apocryphon of john and some of the other gnostic gospels vance do you have a question for adrian yeah adrian as you might know the divine feminine is an aspect of spirituality that is very prevalent in gnosticism kind of suppressed in the normal christian churches what are your thoughts feelings and experiences uh, with the divine feminine uh, you've already mentioned sophia of course Yes, well, the, the divine feminine, to my way of thinking, is contained in um, more of an intuitive feeling approach, a heartfelt approach. Uh, so it's more of the heart than the head. And so when we're doing the inner journey, or when we're finding our truth, we're relying on our intuition which I think is a feminine quality. And uh, it's more of the heart than of the head. More of the right brain as opposed to the left brain. How would you relate that to uh, scriptural things like Mary Magdalene or whatever? Have you thought about well, those yeah, things? Yes, naturally, um, since Gnosticism is based a lot on intuition and feeling and sensing, and creativity. Um, Mary Magdalene features very prominently in the Gnostic literature as being an alternative successor to, to Christ, whereas St. Peter was the, uh, the head of the church in the traditional Gospels. Yeah, very good. Yeah, makes sense. And um, the question, of course, we keep talking about this, but we should keep hammering it because, again, this is a lesson I learned. I don't want to say late in life, whatever the hell that means, but I do know that my programming has to be deprogrammed every day. I have to take that rip. But like I said, we're in recovery and we can relapse any day because this is the world of the demiurge and you don't get over this programming, but... I like you write very simply, Adrian, quote, to defeat fundamentalism requires a shift of perspective from the outer life to the inner life. Yes. I guess the question is, how do we look at the inner life? <laughs> I guess it's easier said than done, right? 
how do we take that journey inward or or how how have you done it adrian i love what um joseph campbell has to say about that he he says where you had thought to find abomination you will find a god where you had thought to be alone you will be with all the world and i i sometimes think about that when i'm I think our conditioning in early life, in particular my own early life as a Catholic or later on in the church, was to mistrust yourself. Like when I was four years old, my mother put me in a convent school in England. And I think a child at the age of four is very intuitive. Um, Wordsworth says at that time, the world is apparelled in celestial light. So we have this intuitive sense. And when my mother put me into this convent school, I instantly felt uncomfortable. I was afraid. And I just didn't like it. So I think that was the voice of intuition speaking to me. Uh, the nuns in the convent school were very severe, very harsh. Uh, they kind of looked upon me, I think, as a little worm that just needed to be broken, a sinner. I can remember one particular occasion when I was in this very gothic uh, dining room. And I was not eating my lunch of macaroni and cheese. So I was surrounded by this, maybe uh, seemed like half a dozen black robes. I was scared to death. And they weren't going to let me leave this place until I'd finished that macaroni and cheese. And there I was kind of choking on it, gagging on it. And I kind of took it as a metaphor, you know, for I wasn't swallowing any of it. I didn't like anything that was on the menu in this place. And I just wanted to get out of it. So I think that kind of thing causes you to not shut down your intuition, but to not listen to it because you don't trust it. You've been uh, conditioned not to believe your own intuition. And this is what got me into trouble later in life because the first day I arrived at the Wizards College, I felt the same way. I can remember it. I just didn't feel like this was, but what do I know? Uh, so it's sort of like you've, because of your experiences in life, you've come to not believe yourself. So it's just a question of listening. It's not that it's you don't get these messages. Is that when you get them, you have to train yourself to accept those and listen to getting quiet, being quiet. Um. I was reading a, a little passage from the active side of infinity, and this is what it what happens when you leave all that behind, as I did, or I wasn't, I didn't leave it behind. I was actually excommunicated from the church. Uh, he talks about, or Don Juan talks about, going into your inner silence causes the flyers. They call them flyers. We call them archons. The Yaqui Indians call them flyers. So when you go into your inner silence, the foreign installation, there again, it's a foreign thing. It's not you. It's not your authentic self. 
So going into your inner silence causes the flyers to flee you. And what happens then? Um, and he says, that's the day when you have to rely on your own devices, which are nearly zero. There's no one to tell you what to do. There's no mind of foreign origin to dictate the imbecilities you become accustomed to. And that's kind of just, <laughs> that just describes perfectly how I felt after I was kicked out of the church. There was an initial feeling of total euphoria. Yes, this is the right thing to do. But then you're faced with the harsh realities. And to me, the myth of uh, the exodus coming out of Egypt, the journey from slavery to freedom really resonates with me. Um, you reach a point where you just, the cup is full and you can take no more and you almost have no choice but to leave it behind. It's kind of like a, a piece of fruit ripening on the vine. At one point, it will just drop off. You don't have to pull it off. It's just you've reached the point where it's you've had enough. But it's not as simple as that. When you when you leave something like that behind, you're suddenly thrust upon your own resources. And in the myth, they've got armies chasing after them. And in the, the wilderness, there's all kinds of dangers, the danger of starvation, of dying of thirst, enemies all around. But there is this kind of guiding light by night and a pillar of cloud by day that offers this kind of divine guidance. And um, there's all kinds of things that can kill you. But you don't get there right away. It's like you're wandering in the wilderness and you're wondering, should I go back? You know, should. And I think a lot of people who leave fundamentalist belief systems behind end up in some other form of fundamentalism. And as you said, Miguel, it's a lifelong process of identifying. And I think observing yourself is important. You have to stand back and be an observer of yourself as you go through this journey. But I think that's uh, that's something that's very meaningful to me, is the Exodus myth, the journey from slavery to freedom, and something that has to be, you have to remind yourself of continuously. Adrian, do you have a, a website or where can people order your work from? Uh, probably the best place to reach me is on my blog site, which is www.aprisonforthemind.blog.blog. And I have um, articles there which expand upon some of the ideas in the book. It's sort of a continuing process, actually, writing this book. And uh, I've written articles on the blog site that are expand upon some of the themes in the book. But that's the best place to reach me or to find out about my book and uh, read some articles that I've written. Well, awesome. And while you heard it here, audience, we will have it on the show notes. 
but we are at the end of this virtual signaling. So, <laughs> so Adrian, again, thank you very much for coming on Aeon Byte and best of luck uh, with your book, uh, Prison for Your Mind. Thank you. And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. The first part of our interview with the wonderful Adrian Smith. The deep programming continues. In our second part, Adrian will go deep into explaining why he became a fundamentalist in the first place. Adrian will admit when exactly he sold out to Jehovah. He'll also get deeper on his excommunication, very personal shit, and then expose the hypocrisy of his church, which probably won't surprise you at all. But leaving and fully deprogramming was painful, as he'll relate. Adrian tackles another kind of fundamentalism, political correctness, as well as postmodernism. And we'll continue weaving in and out Gnostic ideas and texts. He'll grant his views on the pandemic and our cultures dealing with it. And much, much more. So become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the full deprogramming program. It really helps grow this red pill cafeteria. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle. You won't find this Gnostic content or many of our guests anywhere in cyberspace or even meat space. Damning your soul has never been this cheap, but you'll get your spirit back. Membership to Patreon or AB Prime includes full access to the archives with more than 14 years of high-quality interviews. You'll also get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and the Discord channel, as well as other sinful bonuses. Even support in the form of some shekels to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. I also have an Amazon wish list as I always need equipment in this universe of entropy. Don't forget me books like Voices of Gnosticism or Other Voices of Gnosticism. The show has grown to the point advertisers want to appear, but they're rejected as I only work for you and only you. You can do so many wonders and are so full of potential and the ability to navigate this age of Hermes. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true alchemical self. Hello and goodbye as always. <laughs>